Hello everyone and welcome to Fascinating Nouns, your stopping point for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Here at this curious nexus point, we explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, and all the spaces in between. I'm your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Well, tonight I'm interviewing another member of the Stell community, George Blackman. Now, if you don't know what Stell is, if that sounds foreign to you, if you don't know what that word means, well, you haven't been listening, so get up to date on my podcast. I'm talking about Stell, Illinois. I've only mentioned it about a million times, completely shameless plug, self-promoting, cross-promoting, a little podcast called The Stell Experience, uh, which is a little thing I'm putting together, exploring my introduction into Stell, Illinois. Uh, fun little community, check it out. So George Blackman is an amazing guy. He taught me about worms. Now, not the kind of worms your dog gets or the kind that end up in your stomach and make you really skinny. I'm talking about worms that basically produce probably 90% of the world's crops. I pulled that number right out of my keister. I don't actually know the number, but I know it's high. I know they're important, and George is going to talk to us about it. He's got a couple other gardening techniques, a little thing called paramagnetic energy, where basically you create a low-energy field around the crops, which stimulates growth uh, in an uh, incredible way. Um, it just It's phenomenal. And he also does a little thing called Reku Pottery, which you may not have heard of. I definitely haven't heard of it, but they're beautiful. Every The cool thing about this technique is every single pot that he fires up is completely unique. The flames kind of dance around the pot and burn it in different ways, and it's beautiful colors. And we got websites. we got everything. Um, I've got, you know, there's a lot of supplement material on George on the website, uh, fascinatingnouns.com. So check out his website, and uh, we're going to get right to it. George, I, I can't thank you enough for being here. Now, you know, like all guests uh, that I've had before, um, you know, you, you're, di- you're incredible for a lot of different reasons, fascinating for a lot of different reasons. And uh, the first one is vermiculture. You hear it, vermin culture. I'm not interested in learning about the culture of vermin. However, that's not what we're talking about. Why don't you explain a little bit about what, what exactly vermiculture is? Well, vermiculture, and I'm also going to mention a little about paramagnetic magnetism uh-huh. uh, if we look at sustainability which we're all interested in the longest civilization running that we have records of is the Egyptian civilization they lasted for 7,000 years and were sustainable in feeding themselves without modern technology of the tractors and things like that and there's two important things we've learned from them is vermicompost vermiculture and the paramagnetic energy sources and we have to look at the Nile and there's two branches of the Nile Uh, one starts in Ethiopia from very high mountains of volcanic origin Mm. and uh, this rock dust we'll call paramagnetic energy which the difference between uh, magnetic energy which we're all familiar with is the iron Uh, rapidly moving towards a magnet and then you have paramagnetic energy where this uh, energy is moving slowly towards a magnet and the other thing is diamagnetic energy where the uh, element will move away from the magnet Mm. and everything in matter has a signature of magnetic paramagnetic or diamagnetic energy Every, wait, every what has a signature? Everything. everything on Earth. Everything. Everything on Earth can be classified in those terms 
a way of looking at things. And all volcanic rock is paramagnetic. And as far as uh, getting to the sustainability, what the uh, paramagnetic energy will do is it will increase plant growth. And all uh, volcanic rocks, like in the uh, British Isles, they have, everyone's familiar with stone, Stonehenge, but they have over a thousand different circles, and all these circles are made of flint rocks, volcanic origins, and they didn't just make these circles for fun. So a lot of the theories that are coming out now of historians, particularly Dr. Phil Callahan, who really started the uh, the revolution on looking at paramagnetic energy and how it affects plant growth. A lot of these ancient civilizations would plant their plants around these stone circles or stone temples, the pyramids, things like that. Or in uh, volcanic landslides, some of the most fertile uh, soil is of volcanic origin. And what this does, we're still discovering it, it's really in its infancy, is it will stimulate the plant growth. So it will uh, grow faster than normal and it kind of sets up um, uh, programming for the plant to be healthy. And essentially paramagnetic energy, they also give uh, the rock dust of paramagnetic origin to different uh, animals. Azomite's a popular one that's giving in the poultry industry to help the uh, the animals become more healthy and this is true too in uh, human beings. So what the paramagnetic energy, what the bugs are designed to do is to eliminate all uh, plants that are diseased or have reached their maturity and that the bugs start devouring them. And as long as the plant is healthy and growing, uh, the bugs will leave it alone. And Wait, that's true. So you're saying that, that bugs are designed to, to go after sickly plants and not go after healthy plants. Is that universal so they don't ever? Because I've seen some new leaves that have you know, bug marks and bites, and how do they know the difference? Uh, they speculate that the, it's more of on an energy level on the electromagnetic scale that the bugs are uh, picking up. And uh, we'll, we'll be talking about the uh, vermicompost, and which is actually the perfect soil, pure humus. And I have raised um, composting worms for about 30 years, and I have used, as I have tons and tons of uh, vermicompost that I've used on plants, and I would still occasionally get uh, bug problems. But then since I started using uh, the, which I kind of see the compost is more as a fuel and the paramagnetic energy is creating the right pattern for rapid growth. And if you don't have the fuel to supply for the rapid growth into the compost, you, you need uh, both of these to really get the perfect equation and health for plants of the uh, vermicompost or some high quality compost and the paramagnetic energy. But the uh, paramagnetic rock dust is something that's relatively new on the scene. There's a book called Secrets of Soils which has 
an overview of it and talks about Dr. Callahan's work on discovering these uh, uh, different paramagnetic structures that are essentially of volcanic origin because what happens in a volcano is you have like uh, all the elements go down into this hot cauldron and they uh, mix together in a, and create a synergistic effect that we fully don't understand what's going on and then these uh, volcanoes erupt and spread their lava and or dust throughout and there's documentations all over the world how great uh, the plants come back after they've been uh, inoculated with the volcanic ash and they're you know they pr produce rapid growth but I have actually seen uh, after using the paramagnetic dust and there's also structures you can do to create the same kind of energy but it all revolves around volcanic uh, rocks and uh, <clears throat> the bugs literally just walk on the plants and leave the plants alone and my you know it's still in its infancy but i would speculate like on your question there with new growth in that and you get uh, bugs on there that it's not quite up to snuff with the paramagnetic energy in place and what this does it you know on uh, what we might call a etheric level which we can't science can't fully discern or the electromagnetic spectrum that the growth of the plants is starting you know it's stimulating the right energy or the right correcting the genetics it's giving the plant the, the plant the pattern that this is how you have healthy growth and so that's what the paramagnetic energy does and then you have the organic material which ultimately the plant food when everything is broken down everything decomposes over time and some things do it rapidly and some things do it very slowly but the uh, creator created the worm and the worm is the only animal on the planet that makes perfect humus humus is the end result of the composting process when everything is completely broken down completely transformed into a stage of a black uh, rich fertilizer and then the plant can absorb that's the plant food so that's when the plant can absorb the material and a lot of people have composting piles mm -hmm. so how do you go from a, a, a pile of food scraps and waste into compost into humus well human beings are actually the uh, we have the ability and really we have to get more focused on this we can accelerate the composting process like if um, in the woods if uh, leaves just fell on the ground and there wasn't any human intervention mm. it would take close to like 500 years to make one inch of compost but with human intervention of of working with the carbon there's like a ratio of 25 percent carbon to one percent nitrogen keeping that uh, plant material uh, moist and also turning it periodically can help then we can accelerate this pro this process to about six months 
and as we and we really need to learn how to make compost because that's a natural plant food and this uh this is what is going to feed the plants which will either feed us directly or feed the animals that we will eat so it's really a key for our sustainability to understand compost and i would say that is really the key to sustainability the most important thing you can do is learn how to make compost and there's different uh, ways of making compost but essentially you layer the 25% uh, carbon to 1% nitrogen and it will just start the uh, acceleration process so the microorganisms will be eating uh, this plant material and ultimately transform it into humus but the worms are the only animal that whatever goes through their body immediately comes out as humus all the other animals it takes a while to do that but so that's the real value of the worms that people throughout history have acknowledged and I've kind of figured it out so let's talk in in very like more real terms like real world terms of composting because I think this is kind of important so when let's say I've got a, a bucket full of you know corn and and apples you know all kinds of organic material fruits and vegetables let's say so what do I do with that bucket to turn it into compost well, you need uh, <clears throat> the big. You really need a, a at minimum probably like a three by three by three pile, a cube there, and you can um, fence in that pile, put it in a drum, whichever way you want to do. But you want to create this pile that will hold the heat, and the mm -hmm. the mass of the pile, the bigger the pile the more heat you can generate in it because it's insulating the inner part there. So the carbon is what we want to transform and you really want to uh, find sources of uh, nitrogen which could be like uh, blood meal or it could be alfalfa, clover, all the legumes you want to add to that, green grass, anything green will have a high nitrogen carb content mm. and the carbon is what we really have in abundance and that's what we're using to transform the process and what I do for my worms which I have over a million of them is I um, <clears throat> make my compost in this way in a I use a front loader tractor because I have tons of it and then I make um, you know either biodynamic bio intensive compost pile and let that all heat up and become really good compost for a year and then I give it to my worms and the unique other unique thing about the worm is uh, in addition to making instant humus whatever goes through the worms body the parent material uh, it will be enriched it will come out in a higher uh, degree of calcium, nitrogen, phosphorus, and this is kind of like an alchemical effect. No one fully understands it, hmm. and the uh, and create the instant uh, humus. And the beauty of humus, it will uh, hold twice the amount of uh, moisture than regular soil. It's very loose. It's full of um, 
millions of microorganisms and it's kind of the glue that holds soils together. Otherwise, when you see the farmers out in the field, they're uh, tilling up the soil and you get a wind and you see this cloud, well, that's all the dead microorganisms blowing in the wind. And ultimately that created the dust bowl effect. Mm. And they're having these same problems over in China right now with the modern technology is actually killing uh, the soil life. And the ancient civilizations of the Greeks, the Chinese, the Egyptians, the Mayans, they sustain life without using these modern technologies by uh, an understanding of compost and uh, developing the soil and nurturing the soil more connected with nature rather than the disconnect that we're having now because we have to figure out how to mass feed the world population so well so when you take the paramagnetic so you so you have basically any kind of igneous rock like any kind of volcanic rock mm -hmm. so i mean do you smash it up into a powder and then mix it into the soil or do you put big big rocks inside of like a garden uh, you could uh, do it either way, and a lot, Dr. Callahan's uh, talked about this. You can have, you wouldn't want to smash the rocks yourself. It'd be labor intensive. They have, you know, machines where you can get this rock dust, paramagnetic energy, or a lot of these huge stones, particularly if you arrange them into a circle, they will put out an energy that dowsers can detect or if you have a magnosphere magnetic uh, magnetic meter uh, that which costs like over twenty thousand dollars you can read this too but it puts out this uh, energy that will stimulate the plant growth and there's a lady in uh, Australia by the name of Alanda uh, Moore who has developed these uh, towers out there and she's built hundreds of them where it's like a PVC p tower that's about uh, 12 feet high uh, six inches in diameter that are filled with the various uh, volcanic origin rocks or dust and this will work too and this is actually probably a more sustainable way because you don't have to keep replacing the uh, replenishing the dust into your soil there so there's and actually both of them work good and the paramagnetic energy dr callahan was theory was saying that this is coming from and rudolf steiner was saying similar thing there's these cosmic energies they are coming from the sun and elsewhere and these various paramagnetic structures will take this energy and put it into the ground and it's kind of stored into the ground and the uh, plants roots are diamagnetic and so opposites attract so once we get the a rainstorm going because this paramagnetic energy is in the ground the plant roots can take up more nutrients flowing with this energy flow of the paramagnetic energy which helps create a better uh, sap flow so there's more um, water flowing through and more nutrients flowing through the plants which is actually what's stimulating the plant growth so it's kind of like the uh, 
the catalyst for taking in more uh, organic nutritional uh, more nutrients into the plant to make the plant healthier and Australia has been doing this the whole country's doing using these uh, techniques? not the whole country but people who they seem to be a little more uh, on the cutting edge they've been exposed to uh, Rudolf Steiner's work down there and there seems to be more people I would say just more open-mindedness to experimenting with this and it kind of has uh, as people are experimenting and getting uh, verifiable results and more people want to you know work with this uh, this new it's re relatively new probably within the last I think Callahan wrote his book in like uh, somewhere in the mid 80s and so people have kind of like taken this up and he's passed away now but what was the name of his book um he's got a couple one is the um secret life of agriculture and he's got another book on uh paramagnetism mm. where he explains this in detail and um and this was uh, different people like Rudolf Steiner have kind of talked about this, but Rudolf Steiner was also a clairvoyant, so he's seeing things that most people aren't seeing. But he gave lectures on agriculture right before he passed and was talking about this. Uh, it gets into almost like a yin-yang thing, uh, positive-negative relationships which are involved in chemistry. So this... Uh, like Mother Earth is more like the feminine energy and the Sun is associated with more of like a masculine energy so the Sun energy is coming uh, into the earth and being stored into the earth and it's a combination of this chemical reaction of the positive and negative uh, electrons uh, you know uh, protons bonding to each other and just you know, we're still in our infancy learning about it, and uh, but the but if we take our clues from the sustainable civilizations, they were working this system with the compost and building these stone structures and or using these uh, uh, various rock dust to um, uh, sustain life for thousands of years literally well when i was in school we always learned that the nile especially like the tigris euphrates valley that these these rivers would overflow right. and the the nutrient rich sediment would come onto the land and create a very fertile farmland and then that's what people would till so, yeah i mean does that work into that or is that well the, it's not the same thing it doesn't sound like uh yeah it actually is exactly the same thing and what they have there have been, uh, there's a book called Harnessing the Earthworm that was written, I think, in the 40s. And it talks uh, in detail on the study of the Nile. And they're realizing that the Egyptian civilization around the Nile probably had the largest earthworm population that's ever been recorded. And one of the things, the Nile was kind of like, had two things going. You had these very high mountains as high or higher than the Rockies over in Ethiopia and this was called the Blue Nile because all this volcanic rock um, 
you know, fine, created a blue-like color to the Nile there. And then the uh, White Nile, which came from Lake Victoria, would wash up, go through the jungles, and you'd have all this uh, animal dung or vegetable matter. And then you have, it's actually kind of composting during the flooding season. And so you had a mixture of this uh, paramagnetic volcanic dust from the Blue Nile mixing with this organic matter uh, from the White Nile. And then they would flow down to the Nile uh, into Egypt. And along the shores there, I mean, the worms are smart. They People notice worms are always on the, the lower edges there. So the worms during... Lo, lo, what do you mean, lower edges of... Of the, um, well, basically, they're, you really don't find a high, they're in the more fertile ground where in the, the mountainous region, which you don't have in the Egypt, but you have elsewhere in the world, you really don't find worms. They're more in the lower uh, levels where you get more organic material and more moisture going down. So you, so, mean, so you mean not on like, you mean above sea level or do you mean, when you say lower, you mean low physically? Yeah, like when the Nile would flood, that's where the earthworms were. They weren't into the desert where the worms, worms need uh, water, moisture to survive. So they had to be near the outer banks of the Nile, uh, which is where they did their uh, farming because it would flood and all that. But in the uh, dry season, the worms, in order to survive, kept uh, burrowing um, further down six feet or whatnot, and they were creating this natural tilling process and for their survival, essentially. I mean, it's, it's all beautifully perfect natural uh, you know, process that happened. And then when the floods came, then you have these open bur uh, burrows and all the organic matter would flow down into these burrows and the worms would, um, you know, have a field day of a feast eating all this organic material and transforming it into perfect humus. So they had, the ground was tilled by the worms and then they had, it was full of organic material coupled with the paramagnetic rocks so they had like the perfect agricultural system for growing food and since everything's tilled way down the roots were uh, able to go very deep and as things dried out you have this reservoir of uh, moisture and organic material that's uh, you know several feet down into the ground so that everything could just keep on growing so has any other place had that similar those similar conditions or is this unique to Egypt? I, as far as I know, this was uh, the most unique uh, system that Egypt had of combining both the organic material and the paramagnetic material that I know of. Yeah. But I think uh, also there's uh, in the ancient Greeks, uh, Greek civilization, they would build on this landslide effect of a ancient volcano and that would grow uh, great food too but usually they're more of a volcanic origin but as uh, there may be other civilizations I know that the uh, Hunza 
and uh, I think they're by India, and th this is in the book Secrets of the Soil. They're documented. They've had what they call this glacier milk that would flow down from the mountains into their um, uh, garden area food sources there. And these people are documented to live over a hundred years old, no cancer, no hard problems, really good health, which is characteristic of the uh, paramagnetic energy. And also I think you're getting the more nutrients there. It almost seems the worms and animals in general know things that we're not aware of. We've seen like in uh, tsunamis where all of a sudden the before the tsunami hit all the animals are running uh, upstream and the humans are wondering what's going on because we're so into our intellect which you know the dousing is actually tapping into this knowledge that I think our ancient ancestors knew about before we got so intellectually head oriented and a lot of it's also been documented that in the Amazon you'd have these uh, shamans who they receive their knowledge from the plants by actually talking to the plants but coming from more of a, a heart center connection with the plants and that the plants would uh, give them information in ways we don't fully understand we're too uh, linear empirical on our understanding. So I think the worms know um, where to go for their optimal survival mm -hmm. in some ways that we don't fully understand. So that's why they migrate to the lower areas because they need water and all water will flow uh, downhill. So. So, and you've, so you've taken these ideas and you put together a medicine wheel inside of a garden, right? So, yes. how, so explain that a little bit, because I'm going to show a little footage of that later on, what you did. Sure. The, um, uh, actually, Rudolf Steiner is the one who is saying that these uh, stone circles will put out like a paramagnetic energy. And uh, Dr. Callahan verified this, and their stone circles actually... Uh, the Native Americans use the medicine wheel, and in the British Isles, as we mentioned, they're there. And um, any stones in a circle will help create an amplified energy. But if you really want to amp it up more, you want to use the uh, volcanic uh, igneous rocks to uh, create this energy. and I do douse a lot and I can uh, detect this energy. Can you explain what dowsing is really quickly? Uh, dowsing to, is a way to, and they, and this is also real briefly, like over in Vietnam they taught the soldiers uh, how to douse to find, you know, various uh, traps that would injure them and things like that or bombs. Oh, I didn't know that. They didn't. Yeah, so you can uh, you can actually douse for anything. It's common to associate dousers with finding uh, water veins, and so like under the earth we have this network of water, and so you want to tap into it to bring water up there. So I what I believe is that in ancient times the people built these stone circles, 
they had this natural ability and really didn't use need the dousing rod. What the dousing rod is that somehow on our psychic subconscious level uh, we already know this but our intellect gets in through the way of uh, this this knowing and because we can't rationally explain how we know it and confirm it and so what the dousing rod will do is confirm that subconscious psychic awareness for us depending if you're looking for water which is usually a common thing but people have used it for looking for uh, anything uh, oil or you lose something and part of it is that you have to you know kind of teach yourself that and there's a lot of books on it but you have to over you have to create your own system of yes and no and you have to overcome your own basic uh, fear of like I don't know if this is true and the more you do it then the more you feel comfortable doing it but I think the ancients uh, just knew this because they weren't so indoctrinated into the uh, cortex linear intellectual thinking and the dowsing's tapping into deeper uh, archaic parts of our brain that so, so what do you, know, you physically what do you physically do because you have two rods right two l-shaped rods uh, and what are they made out of how do you hold them what do you think about there's uh i actually i have used the l-shaped rods but there's another rod that i use that's in the uh, video there and it's called an aura meter and it was made by this um uh vernon cameron who's out of california is no longer alive but he was a well-known dowser and i find this to be super sensitive but you can use any metal rods that have kind of like an L shape and uh, <clears throat> you will, uh, you have to, your mind has to stay f completely focused, block out everything else and you have to focus on what you're looking, looking for. And I use the uh, aura meter but it's the same thing and I'm looking like, I'm thinking water 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 and I'm trying to feel that energy of the water so my cortex is not wandering all over the place and I'm just trying to you know almost meditative um, focus state thinking about whatever it is I want to find and if I'm looking for water then I'll let this rod uh, or a meter kind of turn me to the left turn me to the right and this is designed so when I am over uh, a, a real good stream of water underground, it will start bobbing up and down. And the more vigorously it bobs, the more that energy is there. And when I made uh, my medicine well, that's what I did first, is I, well, where should I put it? And so I found, and I think this is how they made the stone circles they don't just randomly put it here they find an energy spot that would uh, correspond it and the stone circles will start to amplify that energy spot and so you're getting a uh, double bonus in there hmm. so you uh, and you've had a lot of success with this 
Yeah, yeah. And do the do the do the does do the devices have to be made out of certain type or alloy metals? That Just uh, any metal would work. Clothes hangers would work. A lot of people make them out of copper, which seems to be a little more sensitive. But I think the main thing is, uh, it's not. There's different dousing tools you can use, but I think the main criteria is uh, you have to practice with it, go over like a body of water, and then you can actually, you know that you're not making these move, so you can see the effect of that. And the biggest hurdle that I found was um, believing what I'm doing and seeing it and trying to focus on there. And I've done meditation and that, and that's how I approach it as a big part of it. It's more of like a, a faith that's not, you can't logically prove it. So I, I had my order meter, I'm trying to train myself. I would like, okay, I want water, water. So I go over the toilet and then I, I know I'm not moving it. And yes, I am getting a reaction. So all of a sudden that belief, that faith that you can't uh, empirically prove it's just knowing that it works and you're not and it's the counteractive of uh, doubting which is the whole process of uh, positive mental energy and you know believing that this uh, this is working and then you it's more of an experiential thing you have to kind of work with it because we're all indoctrinated in this culture to have our Cortex, like, oh, what's going on here? I don't know. If yeah, so so the, so you use those techniques to build the medicine wheel. So what exactly was physically in the medicine circle that you? Uh, the medicine wheel, and I've uh, the more stones you put in there, the uh, stronger the the amplified effect you can get. So first, I found an energy spot that would, you know, I'm, in this case, I'm looking thinking what is a good uh, spot for the paramagnetic energy. So I'm thinking paramagnetic energy, paramagnetic energy, and this is why I do, I just just keep saying the same word over and over again so I don't have any distractions and my subconscious knows what I'm focusing on and when I'm dousing for water I'm going water, 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 I want water, you know, and uh, trying to disengage my uh, cortex. So I found a paramagnetic spot, and then you can make the circle any size you want, really, by use these uh, huge boulders about, you know, 500, 250 to 500 pounds that I put in uh, four directions, you know, true north, uh, south, east, and west. And, um, and then you can put other stones in between those or you can use smaller stones the bigger the stone the more energy it collects or on the same token if you use more stones rather than use a megalithic stone which is hard to maneuver unless you have machinery now and that's the other question is how did these ancient people like move these stones at Stonehenge that even are equipment can do and the same thing on the pyramid how they build that thing so there's all these kind of energies that uh, seem like psychic energy or whatever that were 
still on our infancy of learning and a lot of these indigenous people probably have a better grasp of this kind of energy and working with this and what we do so it's a good thing to uh, be able to get a state of balance between you know our technological oriented intellectual society and the more indigenous earth-centered society working with these uh, earth energies and I think combining the two knowledges could produce in a synergistic effect something brand new that could be healthy for uh, both cultures in there. and these are specifically used for gardening this is so this is for specifically charging the energy of plants and animals and everything yeah and uh, us being animals too a lot of the uh, ceremonies were uh, conducted around these sun circles the Native American medicine well and it helps to uh, stimulate the consciousness of the people in a more uplifting way being in harmony with each other and the rest of the universe and making that connection you know so I think they're and it's also in um, Dr. Callahan made this point in uh, his book, uh, The Magnetic Life of uh, Agriculture, that a lot of the saints who were canonized, you have to have certain qualifications. And there are all these uh, churches were made out of stones, very elaborate in Europe. And people have observed these um, soon to be saints. Um, in deep prayer meditation inside these paramagnetic structures and they would start levitating off the ground hmm. to a certain effect there and that was one of the quote-unquote miracles that helped them get canonized it wasn't like they were looking to get canonized they were just so focused in doing what they were doing in that deep meditation Plus, they usually had uh, healing qualities, which Dr. Callahan suggests that uh, healers have a high, uh, are probably a little, some people are, have a more paramagnetic energy in them than others. And these people who have more paramagnetic energy, exactly what's causing that, are more of a healer's. Uh, and paramagnetic energy, as he described it, is essentially healing growth energy. Whether it's in human beings, animals, or plants, this is the effect of the paramagnetic energy to produce growth and to produce healing energies, which is why the bugs are leaving the plants alone. Hmm. Um, so now when you mix the worms in there, how exactly do you raise the worms? Like how does, it, how does that work? If someone wanted to start a worm farm, what would they do? Um, I'm doing my worm farm on a very large scale and there actually is a lot of information on doing it on a smaller scale which most people would probably do but for me um, the, the key is whatever uh, you I want to make the best worm compost that I can and so whatever material you give to the worms, you know, if I start out, if I'm using shredded paper, which some people do, there's not exactly a high nutritional comp, uh, 
content in the shredded paper. So I try and use organic material from the plants and I compost that material for a year and then I give that to my worms. One of the downsides that you don't want to do is in the compost process you have heat which breaks everything down and you don't want to throw your worms into something hot because you will kill them. So I do a double stage process of making good quality compost which a lot of organic gardeners would hey I'm done this is good enough but I take it an extra step and give it to my worms to mm -hmm. this is my worm food this is what the worms eat to fully compost to finish off everything that may not be quite finished and I know it at that point once it goes to the worms it's pure humus mm. so they're like I'm, I've been figuring out how how to work with the worms to give them what uh, they need so they will make the perfect compost because there's no better composter than the worm. So when you put when you take the compost out you have to kind of filter the worms out of it to use it? Uh, yes I do have uh, a machine it's called a worm harvester. But uh, <laughs> They make a machine that harvests worms. Yeah. And it's a tumbler machine where you throw in the material and the you have three different mesh screens and the finest mesh screen which is the beginning of this tumbler it's the worm castings or the pure humus the worm poop yeah castings is poop right yeah, yeah. worm poop and so that's what has come out of the worm and that is uh, the plant food the pure humus that's fully it can't be broken down any further and then you have different mess screens where you would put that back into the worm pile and then the worms come out at the end but you can make a simple uh, two by two uh, screen and you can put the uh, material in there with the worms and sieve it and the worms probably won't depending you wanted a fine mesh and so you get your castings out of there and the worms would be for the homeowner the worms would be in there and the material that they haven't gone through that so you can keep repeating that process and have your real fine organic material there um, so the uh, so there's always a constant shuffling of worms that compost and so how do you how do you breed worms then well <clears throat> there's um, hundreds if not thousands of types of worms and the uh, what do you, which one do you use mostly? Well, the, oh, the, it's called the uh, composting worm, generic name, but it's also called the uh, red wiggler, and there's various types of those. And the reason that you use these is because this worm is the most prolific worm on the planet. Um, <clears throat> it will reach uh, when the worm has like. Um, a ring around its neck that's when they reach uh, breeding status and the red wiggler will take about uh, a month roughly to reach to mature to breeding status a month to two months max and it's estimated once you have a wor red worm at breeding status that worm can uh, yield a hundred more worms in a year in ideal conditions 
so things start to uh, expand exponentially and the worms they sell them uh, you can buy them over the internet and roughly a pound of worms it's almost like hamburger is that's about the volume that looks like uh, is a thousand worms so if you start there in a year's time you know you can see how it just uh, grow exponentially the earthworm which is actually not native to uh, North America but came over from Europe is uh, a worm that can take about uh, two years before it reaches breeding status and the earthworm when they, they these eggs are called capsules the uh, redworm composting worm will lay a minimum of two capsules to twenty capsules about every month and within that capsule you're going to get uh, you know quite a few worms in there and you know they they reach breeding status within a month to two months whereas the earthworm will take two years and they only lay like two capsules oh wow so they breed significantly slower slower yeah so that's the beauty because as you expand your operation you get more uh, like a ton a worm will process the organ uh, this the same volume of material in a day as its weight mm. so if you have a ton of worms they can go through a ton of material in a day which wow. is what ancient Egypt had they had so many worms I can't remember exactly what it was but they would I think in a year go through like 20 tons of material they could not believe how uh, vast the population of the worms were but you're giving the worms ideal conditions and three things you need with the worms for survival you can't let them dry out they have to be in a moist environment uh, the other thing is you have to have plenty of, of organic food. If they run out of food, they'll all die. So you have to be able to supply enough organic material. So a ton of uh, organic material, if you have uh, 2,000 pounds of worms, I mean, that's hard to come up with that much material. And then the other thing is you don't want to let them... Uh, compact you want them in a kind of loose environment because it will just you know crush them and kill them so if you do those three things you will uh, that's basically all you need to know about the raising the worms make sure your environments moist make sure there's plenty of food and make sure it's it's loose uh, and Aristotle, was it who called them the intestines of the earth? Yeah, Aristotle called the worms, they're the intense intestines of the earth. Uh, Charles Darwin said the worm is the most important animal on the planet because it's creating all the plant food. He figured that out in his, uh, you know, thesis with the, the, you know, at the end of his life, not thesis, but his work they wrote on uh, the leaf mold thing. And uh, Cleopatra, you know, after the Egyptian civilization, they realized what's going on. She declared the worm a sacred animal. Hmm. 
I didn't know that. Because of the importance, yeah. Wow. So there's a lot to worms. Um, yeah. A lot to them. They're really the key for our survival. If we don't have the worms, we really are, uh, we take a back step to making the plant food. The worms are the ones who are, they're the intermediary in this cycle of life for all the animals. Essentially, we need the plants and how do we make the plant foods? Well, the Creator made the worm, and it's, yeah, the mo it really is the most important animal on the planet. It's the cycle, the sustainable cycle. Yeah. Uh, let's let's uh, switch gears just for a second before we run out of time, because you also are, do uh, Reiku pottery? Uh, Raku pottery. pottery. What is that exactly? It's uh, beautiful. Yeah, it's, um, Raku is actually a firing method and there's debate whether it or originated in China or Japan, but uh, my teachers, I went to James Madison University, my teachers from Japan, and Raku essentially means fun. And uh, the or my understanding of the origin is that there was um, uh, Zen tea masters who believed that you know, whatever you're putting your energy into, it creates your life kind of signature, mm. whatever you're doing, and that they could read this. So they all made their individual teapots, and one of the beauties mm. of the uh, Raku firing is you take the piece out of the kiln, the kiln is the oven where everything's glowing red hot, and you take it out at around 1400 to 1600 degrees Fahrenheit and you place it into combustible materials and it's a very intense process where you are you have to be totally aware and focused on what you're doing so you don't burn yourself and you place the material into the combustibles which ignite and that fire that spontaneity energy will reflect uh, essence of your being your character onto the pot hmm. so after they all fired their pottery pieces they would sit in silence and each uh, person who made their uh, teacup they would pass it around and in a way kind of intuitively grok the essence of that person huh. and so that's how Raku uh, started and it and it means kind of uh, fun and a lot of times in the um, and that has to do with the spontaneity of it you're actually uh, they also considered use the word uh, raku to be like a raku violinist and whatever profession you do whether a violinist or uh, computer whiz or whatever there's the basics that you have to learn and everyone starts with and you got those basics down and you have perfected everything that you're doing and then you get into a state where you're free to create and that's when you're in a state of Raku. Hmm. Raku is almost like a self-actualization where you understand the basics and now you're putting your own signature, your own stamp on whatever you're doing. So that's kind of where the Raku comes from the the concept of it and so it's like you're at play like a little kid you're starting you're just 
creating, make-believe, being creative, just doing whatever you're doing, you have the freedom because you've mastered the basics and you're going off in your own uh, world of creation there. And so that kind of reflects in the fire is very spontaneous. You don't control fire. You learn to work with it. So that's why this fire, usually in the kiln, uh, regular pottery, you protect the uh, actual flame from touching the pottery pieces. And in Raku, you're getting, it's like putting it into combustibles that ignite and the fire's dancing all around the mm. pottery piece and giving these spontaneous um, uh, energy movements. And I always like to stay as the Zen masters in a real focused, positive, uh, excited, enthusiastic frame of mind because that energy will be reflected into the pottery piece there. So each piece is different then. It's almost it, like, a, I mean, obviously as you're in your stamp on it, but every piece is totally unique. Yeah, I've never seen two alike, and that's really the essence of Raku, that they each one has its own individual uh, character about it. And that actually goes back to the Zen uh, tea masters ceremony and what the Zen masters believe that every human being is unique. And so that this firing method is a reflection of each person's own individuality that is not duplicated. Right. Their unique stamp. Uh, how big are these things? Because you, you make them, right? You make lots of them. Yeah, I make uh, lots of them and I've made uh, pieces that are over two feet large. I've made smaller size pieces and a whole range of things I've been doing about uh, 30 years. Oh wow. And, uh, and I'm noted for getting very uh, vivid bright colors. I put the metal oxide copper in there and most people have seen like a, a copper pipe heated with a torch you get that rainbow effect only I'm having um, a mini bonfire dancing around the ceramic piece and creating all these swirls of colors and the the timing is super critical to get the bright colors on there using the copper matte finish. And there's also uh, a white crackle glaze. There's hundreds of finishes in the the copper matte finish. I use the white crackle glaze too, which creates a fractal pattern that's always a little different. But I'm, I'm noted for my more bright colors, which I uh, like to get. Wow. And how do people see these if they wanted to take a, take a look? Yeah, I, I have my uh, website, and my last name is uh, Blackman, and then Raku is R-A-K-U, and you can uh, Google that and see my website. Since each piece is different, I haven't really updated that. And uh, the other thing the people like that I will do, I probably made about... 40 cremation urns, so they make a, oh, wow. a one-of-a-kind uh, unique cremation urn for people and I can put uh, if you're in, if you're Christian if you want a cross or if you're Jewish you want a star of David or you just want it uh, simpler a little more complex I can do that oh everything um, 
Well, George, we're about out of time. So how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about uh, vermiculture? Do you go through your website? Yeah, probably the website would be best. And I have an email uh, address on that site. What, what is the, do you have the site exactly, just so I can give the exact site? Uh, www.blackmanraccoon.com. Uh, Blackmanraccoon.com. You got it. All right, George. I really appreciate you talking to me, man. Well, thank you very much, Dan. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a good night.